Welcome to this episode of the Mental Agility for Forensic Scientists podcast, brought to you by the Midwestern Association of Forensic Scientists. I'm your host, Jen Dillon, and I'm so excited for today's episode because we are going to talk about a book that has taken me through many experiences, both in my personal and professional life, Um, and that book is called The Four Agreements, authored by Don Miguel Ruiz. This book is one of those books that I read time and time again. I try once a year at least to read it, and um, it's a pretty short read. You can you can do it, you know, within the matter of maybe two hours for sure, depending on how much time you spend really reflecting on it. And it's a book that I pick up when I'm having a difficult moment with one of the agreements and my ability to to try to live up to the agreement. And, and so I can open that chapter and read and reflect. And depending on how much growth has occurred with me between the last time I've read that section, I may interpret it in a completely different way. So I just wanted to share this book with you, introduce it. Maybe some of you have read it. If you haven't, uh, I really do highly recommend it. But this book is about the relationship we have with ourselves and the perception of who we think we should be versus who we are actually being. We project this perception onto others and think this is how they should be as well. This is a book, again, I try to impart the concepts in the workplace. And in fact, I have a sticky note with the four agreements written on it stuck to my computer, and it's been there for the last several years. And I think that one of those four agreements is underlined and highlighted and starred. And so after I go through them, maybe you'll understand me a bit more and, um, and understand yourself a bit more. The author suggests that our relationship with ourselves and with others can be perfected if we simply live according to the four agreements. The agreements may sound simple, but they are difficult to put into practice. Remember, my friends, the practice is what matters, not the reward. The reward comes by putting in the work, so direct your efforts into absorbing and applying, internalizing, and making the practice a way of living. This is how we turn all knowledge into wisdom. Before I get too ahead of myself, I just want to share what those four agreements are, and then I'm going to go into them. I'm going to introduce the concept of the agreements in general. And I'm already thinking that this might jump into a two-part episode because this stuff is just so, so important and I don't wanna rush through anything. So the four agreements are, number one, be impeccable with your word. Speak with integrity, say only what you mean. Avoid using the word to speak against yourself or gossip about others. Use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. Number two, don't take anything personally. Nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality, their own dream. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. Number three, don't make assumptions. Find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. Communicate with others as clearly as you can to avoid misunderstandings, sadness, and drama. With just this one agreement, you can completely transform your life. Always do your best is number four. Your best is going to change from moment to moment. It will be different when you are healthy as opposed to sick. 
Under any circumstance, simply do your best and you will avoid self-judgment, self-abuse, and regret. That right there, my friends. <laughs> Ooh. So I just read the inside lining of the book to you, um, which explains the four agreements in a nutshell. This is a philosophical book, and as such, it's meant to be read with a curious mind. There might be parts of the book which challenge your belief system and perhaps trigger emotional reactions. If you pick it up and experience these emotions, I encourage you to witness them as objectively as possible, without judgment and with some curiosity. Try not to torture the text and project your perceptions onto the message, but rather note that message to be like a marker on a map, telling you that this is where you're at, emotionally and intellectually, which surprisingly few people are aware of. They don't even know where they stand on those levels. You can't get to where you want to go by looking at a map if you don't know where you are to begin with. This is where you can begin a new point of growth, just like a new shoot on the stem of a plant. It's called a growth edge, and we typically stumble upon them through agitation. So let's not ruminate on anything that might aggravate us, but rather use it as a prompt to move further, delve into, ask questions, be curious. Everything we do is based on agreements that we've made, right? Agreements with ourselves, with other people, with the unknown entity we may refer to as God, with life. But the most important agreements are the ones that we make with ourselves. In these agreements, you tell yourself who you are, what you feel, what your beliefs are, and how to behave. The result is what you call your personality. Don Miguel Ruiz calls this human domestication. We've been raised and conditioned by rules and concepts put in place by society. This is what we've been brought up with. So think about your family circle, the friendship circle you may have, a religious community you may be a part of, and what we're going to talk about today, workplace culture. All of these rules, some of them very subtle and unspoken, some of them very direct and written down and protocols and procedures, they're all belief systems that have been really placed upon us. We've been raised to know them as truths. And so this book is asking you to question. Just simply take a moment to reflect and ask yourself, are these your truths? So an easy example is that if you speak English as your primary language, it's not because you made that choice as an infant, but rather because you were raised in an English-speaking country. If you are Jewish, you likely didn't make that choice again as an infant, but rather brought up in a Jewish family. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's right. All I'm suggesting is that we never really spent the time considering the source of our belief systems, right? We accepted them as truth, as part of our culture. The idea of the roles that we play in life, the roles that a man and a woman play, come from the men and women who raised us and by the companies that we buy clothes and toys from, right? Pink means girl and boy means blue. And is that really true? We agreed with this information that we were taught and we have concepts of our world as a result. What happens is we learn to judge what fits into certain categories such as right and wrong. We weren't naturally taught to question, but rather to accept. 
In this way, Ruiz suggests that we are domesticated just as a dog or cat has become domesticated. He speaks of our belief system as the book of laws. And within the book of laws, we have set boundaries and rules for us to follow and live within. We also have what he calls the inner judge, the part of our mind which places judgment on everything we experience. Does it fit into our belief system or not? And he speaks of the victim which is a part of our mind receiving judgment that we may place on ourselves. Because not only does the inner judge place judgment on others, but also on ourselves. This is really where we begin to talk about mental agility and how we can use the practice of these four agreements to work on this inner judge and the victim. First, we will take a look at our belief systems within our workplace. But most importantly, we will work to tend to the things that we can really see the effect of. This inner judge and this victim that we sometimes play. Think about small children. Now, Ruiz will say that children are maybe in the process of being domesticated or have not been domesticated yet. They aren't worried about the past actions or the future actions that they may take. They're totally focused on the present and experience a lot of enjoyment. If you think about kids, right, their boundless energy always focused on what's happening right now. By the time we're teenagers, we have learned to let that inner critic, that inner judge, have a very loud voice in our head. And out of fear of being punished, right, becoming that victim, and wanting a reward, we begin to try to fit in. And we create this lifestyle that may or may not reflect who we truly are or want to be, but rather who fits in a nice little category of the lifestyle that we happen to be a part of, the work culture that we happen to be a part of. It's difficult to be the black sheep, a lot easier if we follow the herd and fit in. But is that really what we want? not here to make any suggestions, just simply to provide a a place for us to start to question. So the agreements that we've made with ourselves may be based on false beliefs that we've just been conditioned to follow, right? We deal out emotional poison to ourselves and to others when we feel we or they haven't lived up to those false standards of what is right. So here's a quote. True justice is paying once for every mistake. True injustice is paying more than once. Now just think about that. I'll read it once more. True justice is paying once for every mistake. True injustice is paying more than once. Now we punish ourselves over and over, relentlessly sometimes. I mean that we do this at the level of the mind, right? In our thoughts. I can give you the simplest of an example of walking into a room and having a conversation with someone at a party and and then walking away from that conversation and instantly beginning to question yourself. What did I just say? Did I come off as stupid? Was I being gossipy or snarky? Like whatever it is that we do to ourselves, right? Where we start to punish ourselves over and over by self doubt and guilt and blame, but we don't have to indulge in it. And it's interesting to note that only human beings do this. 
animals do not do this. And my dog does not come up to me, get some love and attention, and then walk away and question whether or not they deserved that attention, right? They, they just don't. Why? Because they don't have the level of the subtlety of the mind and the intellect that human beings have. So it's just interesting to think about how many times we may make ourselves pay for an experience. In order to find our way back to who our most authentic and free self is, to be completely free of any type of victimization, guilt, or blame, we have to learn to question the agreements that we're currently following, ask ourselves if they're working for us, and then maybe break the bindings of some of these old agreements that we've made with ourselves and create new ones. This requires that you let down barriers that you may have put into place long, long ago. Requires you to see the big picture of the world that we live in and let go of any ideas that your belief system may be unflawed. No belief system is completely unflawed. This book may stir up opinions that you have about new belief systems, right? It's, it's challenging to, to take a look at what you hold so near and dear to your heart and then, and then start to question it. So if that happens, I just want to give you a little encouragement that, that this is a point of perhaps some growth. Now, an application of these agreements into the forensic world, I already feel constriction in my chest with this topic because most of us work within a law enforcement agency and the idea of proposing that there may be a foundational crack in the belief system goes against the grain in a very harsh way. Here's the thing. I am not here to say that we should try to change the system. I fought that battle. It is brutal and futile. I am here to say that we have the ability as human beings to make these new agreements with ourselves and simply lead by example. We cannot change the system, but we can change the way the system affects us. So with that in mind, I'm going to go through and really dive into each of these agreements and speak to you from from my heart and from my experience about how I've applied them in the forensic world. I will go into the first agreement, which is be impeccable with your word. Ruiz says, this means to speak with integrity. Say only what you mean. Avoid using the word to speak against yourself or to gossip about others. Use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. It's said to be the most important agreement and also the most difficult to honor. Why is that? Because words have tremendous power. Your intentions, feelings, thoughts, all manifest through the word. Ruiz says the word is the most powerful tool you have as a human. It is the tool of magic, but like a sword with two edges, your word can create the most beautiful dream or your word can destroy everything around you. Think of the example of the power of Hitler's word. This man's word created a world war and atrocious acts of violence that are still felt to this very day. The separation that was caused all by the power of word. 
The mind is like a fertile field and words are like seeds. So just ask yourself, what kind of seeds are you planting? Ruiz also says, whenever we hear an opinion and believe it, we make an agreement and it becomes part of our belief system. So when you are impeccable with your word, you're taking responsibility for your actions. This means you say something to an individual, a colleague perhaps, they hear that word and they may take your opinion and hear it as truth. Are you going to take responsibility for that? And conversely, can you take responsibility for yourself as a listener and say, I do not have to take that as truth. That is an opinion. It's yours, not mine. Right? One of my favorite phrases these days is not my monkey. That's not my monkey on my back. That's someone else's issue. I am not going to carry around that sort of emotional poison that you've thrown my way. You might be serving it up, but I don't have to drink it. Thinking about the things that we experience as forensic scientists, um, the first thing that came to my mind with be impeccable with your word is our testimony, right? Isn't that the, the primary example of where we are on the stand speaking for the science, speaking the truth? So remember that our words, but also how we say them, are planting seeds in the minds of jurors. Being impeccable with our word on the stand is more than just testifying truthfully. It means speaking uniformly with both the prosecution and the defense, providing explanations and concessions with equal inflection in our tone. The intention behind your words have power, and our role as a forensic scientist is to present the facts. Facts should not exhibit bias. As a forensic scientist, you have no interest in the outcome of the trial, and your words should reflect that. In contrast, both the prosecutor and the defense attorney do have a vested interest in the outcome. Their words will have very different connotations, so it is prudent to be attentive to any twisting of your words, listening to their questions very carefully, being sure to correct any mistaken words they have chosen. Remember that we are all playing a role in the judiciary system, and your role is to be impeccable with your word. That goes to our report writing as well. Our reports should be written in a way in which they stand alone, as we are not always invited to give our testimony. Our reports are often just entered into the record. We should not leave room for questioning or doubt on the weight of our conclusions. Association skills have assisted greatly in strengthening the integrity of reports. Huge, huge fan of them. I know that many of us aren't serving roles as technical leaders, and so we may feel like we don't have much to say in, in what conclusions we make, right? We may be just pulling from templates that we use, right? Because we, we want to be standardized in our reports. No one scientist's report should read or sound differently than another scientist's report within the same laboratory system. You know, it should not matter who gets assigned a case. But even though we may be pulling from template conclusions, it doesn't mean that every scenario is going to fit neatly into a template, right? Templates serve their purpose, but it's not the end and be all of report writing. 
using impeccability with our words as a forensic scientist would require us to use our voice when we feel that a conclusion doesn't serve the evidence appropriately. When we feel we need to reach up the chain and ask for an exception from the template choices that we have. So those are the two, the two like big things for me that stood out with being impeccable with the word. But the third one, oh gosh, also just as important to me. And it goes more to our everyday work life experience. I'm talking about our work culture, the way that we treat one another on the job. We have a stressful job. I mean, I think you all know how I feel about the type of working conditions that, that we are in. Just, I mean, take out work culture and just look at what we do. Don't we deserve a welcoming, supporting environment in which to carry out our job, which is very harsh and often engaging with the underbelly of society? It just seems backward to me that our work culture would be just as harsh and unsupportive as the job itself. When it comes to speaking impeccably with your word, I mean the way that we speak of others and to others. So speaking poorly of our coworkers is akin to doling out poison for others to consume. Think about the phrase food for thought. The words we speak are chewed up and digested like food. The quality of the food we are eating affects the amount of nutrients we absorb. When we speak of and to our colleagues, are we providing high-quality, nutrient-rich sustenance? Or are we spewing the nutritional value equivalent of a Big Mac? Our words matter. You already know this. How much better do you feel after you've built somebody up compared to how you feel after you've torn someone apart? The smallest of gestures have the greatest effect on work culture. I admit, I can let my emotions get the best of me. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a girl who wears my heart on sleep. But I'm trying to keep all of that in check. I try to make an effort to tell my colleagues when I appreciate them and check myself when I'm feeling negative thoughts about them. Because all that is is poisoning to them and also poisoning to myself. I appreciate and want my colleagues to know how I feel about what a difference they are making. Just speaking one little positive word to a colleague can have a magical effect. Think about how much work you do, how much work you get done in a day when your mind is busy ruminating over the way your boss spoke to you or a tech reviewer left you a snarky comment on your casework. How much work do you get done? And compare that to the clarity that you have when you feel valued and respected. The room you have, the space to do good quality work. When your mind isn't cluttered with all of that poison. Now think about this example when it comes to chain of command. Think about a supervisor referring to their staff either as their team or as their subordinates. The two terms send out very different messages. By referring to your staff as your subordinates, you're establishing a clear message of the value you impart on establishing hierarchy. There is separation in hierarchy, us and them. 
Surely your employees may speak to you respectfully. Out of fear of your retaliation, though, not out of respect. Is that the way that you want to lead? Which is more powerful from a leadership standpoint? Fear or respect? When a supervisor refers to their team, there is an immediate acknowledgement that they are also part of that team, serving as the leader and thus taking ownership for the well-being of that team. A recognition that everyone has a role to play and that those roles may be different in nature, but they are necessary parts of the whole. All of that messaging in two different terms, two different philosophies of leadership. I certainly believe that words matter and that people should be held accountable for the words that they use. And I will be the first to stand up and apologize or respect the damage that was done from words that I have used. I'm not saying to reach out to me and tell me all the times that I've upset you, but <laughs> please accept my apology, my recognition of the role that I've played in any way. But this is something that I practice because I do truly feel the power of the word. Think about a new employee and their introduction to the culture at work. They have an especially fertile soil for planting seeds, trying to make a concerted effort to let them form their own opinions about people, whether it be their new supervisor, their new laboratory director, the colleagues that they work with, members of their team, members of other disciplines, the prosecutors that they will work with. You know, it, it is entirely truthful that one person can have a very, very productive, happy, healthy relationship with an individual and another person have a very unhealthy relationship with that individual. And so you never want to poison someone's thoughts before they've even had the chance to establish an organic relationship. You don't want to poison that person with the words that you've spoken. Same goes with emails and, and any sort of work communication, memos, the way you run a meeting. You know, <laughs> I think of uh, my favorite email jargon and the messages that are actually attached to them. So um, just a friendly reminder, what does that really mean when you send that? You know, there are many little golden nuggets that we see in emails all the time. We know that there are dangers in inferring tone from an email, but that does not discount the fact that there is, in fact, tone in every word we choose to use, sometimes especially in written form. And so the tone that you are writing your email in may be different from the tone that it is interpreted in, but there is, in fact, a tone regardless. The problem is that in written word, it is very difficult because we don't get that inflection be aware and mindful that we don't have control over the tone that is inferred. And it is impossible. It is inhuman to not infer tone from an email. It is a skill to take yourself away from that interpretation and to learn to be objective about it. And uh, this will lead directly into the second agreement, which is don't take anything personally. Ruiz says, nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. I'm going to read that one again. Don't take anything personally. 
Nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. So this one is highlighted, underlined, circled, squared, starred. <laughs> this is the one that is the marker on my map. When I feel agitated, I always stop and ask myself, girl, are you taking this personally? And most of the time, the answer is yes. And it's my struggle. It's what I'm working on. Let's talk about tech reviews. How many of you open up a tech review like it is a personal assault on the integrity of your competency and professionalism? An attack. How dare someone say these terrible things about the quality of your work, right? Just think about it and be honest with yourself and remember that the belief system that we have been brought up with in the forensic sciences is that mistakes have grave repercussions. Mistakes are a bad, bad thing in our world. And some of them, you know, do have very grave repercussions. So I am not downplaying the serious nature of our job. What I'm saying is that an uninitialed crossout is not one of those grave repercussion type mistakes. And we don't need to make such mountains out of molehills when someone points those things out. So think, think about these agreements, these old agreements, old belief systems that have been ingrained in our culture, insisting that we must obtain perfection, right? This first pass quality. How good do we feel when one of our tech reviews goes through without even a comment, it just goes straight to administrative review, woohoo! A report gets out the door. It doesn't mean that you did you know, any better of a job in the actual interpretation of that evidence than on a different case where you missed capitalizing a, a word. <laughs> or even something, something bigger. You know, it's, we have systems in place to catch these types of mistakes. We are human and we will make mistakes. I hate when a defense attorney is like, you know, so you've never made a mistake. Yes, if we strive to be more mindful in our work, then these mistakes can be avoided. But when someone points them out, FYI, they aren't saying you suck at your job. If someone is trying to say that you suck at your job by pointing out every mistake you make, they're really saying a lot more about their insecurity than it does about your level of competency. Ruiz says that taking things personally is the maximum expression of selfishness because we make the assumption that everything is about me. So there you go, my friends. I have highlighted, don't take everything personally because I am perhaps being selfish. That hit home to me. So y'all who are my haters out there <laughs> can revel for a moment in my taking accountability and ownership that a lot of anxiety and stress and fear and personal attack that I sometimes feel is out of selfishness. And I'll explain that to you. I don't mean that I am a selfish person in that I am um, nothing more than I always thinking of myself. How is this going to affect me? Not, I don't want to share my toys with you. I don't want to share success with you. I don't want to share experiences and emotions with you. I want to keep it all to myself. That's not what I'm talking about. When I went to India, the Swami that I was learning under at the ashram I stayed at told me 
when I asked him a question about stress and anxiety in the workplace, he, he said to me very directly, he said, to the extent that you experience agitation, you are being selfish because you're wrapped up in this, what about me? How is this affecting me? Why am I feeling this way? The more you make everything about yourself in that way, the more you are self-victimizing. The more you are making connections that maybe are there, but maybe they're not there. Maybe it's in at the pure level of the mind, right? So going back to those tech reviews, it's like the harsher someone is on a tech review, really the way that I see that is that, man, it must be hard to be in that person's head all the time because if they hold everyone up to those standards it's easy for us to think that they must it's because they think that they're so lofty and no they are holding themselves up to the same unattainable standards it is hard to be those people and so you learn to have a little bit of compassion a little bit of understanding of those people you know the person who may come across as a complete narcissist, may actually be the most vulnerable and insecure person you know. It just comes across as narcissism. Now, there are true narcissists. They don't have feelings about things one way or the other. But many times what you see, what people are projecting, the way that they're acting is is really just a form of self-expression. So when you catch yourself taking things personally, without being hard on yourself, stop and ask, am I being selfish right now? So I think about this agreement a lot when, again, testifying in court, thinking about the way that a defense attorney will try to lead you down a path, or when, you know, that age-old trick of like, oh, Dr. Dylan, oh, wait, you're not a doctor, you only have a bachelor's degree, things like that. The way that people try to feed you garbage, right? (laughs) And then see if you'll eat it and see if you will take that bait. Defense attorneys do it often. They try to get you to go down a path. And it's our job as a forensic scientist to recognize that and to not get caught up in it. Um, I don't know if you've ever witnessed someone get so caught up in defending themselves on the stand because a defense attorney is trying to get them to even maybe just a maybe they maybe they did make a mistake in what they said or you know they're trying to get them to admit something make a concession to something and that person is so caught up in being right that it becomes palpable and uncomfortable to watch someone just refuse to admit jurors pick up on that and they notice and sense that. Now, on the other hand, if you recognize that and you right away make your concession, oops, I made a mistake, pardon me, I didn't mean to make that impression or I I, I misspoke, please forgive me, right? There's nothing wrong in, in even asking, like, can we go back on the record? Can I, what did I say? I want to make sure that I'm clear to the jurors. Um, that's so important and takes such skill, the ability to rein yourself in and not get swept up in that attorney. That that attorney has been trained to do those things to you. 
You know, it's all part of the roles that we play, again. And your job as a forensic scientist is to show up and play your role, to be unbiased, to let the science speak through your voice. And science doesn't get emotional. The fact that we're human kind of goes against that science wanting to speak through us, right? Because we will get heated and our face might turn red and we may wish and hope and pray that there's a break coming up so that we can kind of recollect ourselves. That ability to see what's coming down the road when a defense attorney is trying to lead you down a path, to recognize that and not get caught up in taking it personally and not get caught up in that selfishness of like, how is he trying to make me look? I'm going to outsmart them. That is doing an injustice to your role as a forensic scientist. Your role is to speak to the science. Science is not going to get caught up in the trap that's being set for you. When that attorney sets the trap, he's setting it for the human, not for the science. We struggle to tell the truth on the stand and in our testimony because of the roles of other participants. We can get caught up in some drama. You can talk about supervisors, command decisions up the chain, and taking things personally, you know, decisions that are made for the betterment of the team, but you might be the the person who sort of takes the hit, and you take that personally when at a business level it makes sense, right? Yeah, we can really get into this one. I, I feel like I could talk about taking things personally all day long. Remind yourself, if you find yourself taking things personally, that when someone gives you an opinion, it is based on their belief system. It's based on their projection of them onto you. Their point of view comes from all of the pre-programming that they've received, right? Their belief system. So you don't have to think things personally. It's kind of our default, though. So you got to catch yourself and change your perspective. The one concept that I want to make mention philosophically is in Sanskrit, we call it being a sakshi, being a witness, a witness to your own surroundings, right? And the example is when you watch a movie, good things can be happening, bad things can be happening, but you watch it and you, you may get emotionally attached and involved in the movie, right? The movie may make you cry or you may get angry, you may experience all of these emotions, but when the movie's over, you typically go about your, your daily life and you recognize it as what it is, a piece of art, an expression of someone's beliefs and ideas, and you don't take it personally. Can you take that and apply that to your life? What if you were to look at the things you experience as if you were watching a movie? This is what Ruiz has to say about that. I know that you see the world with different eyes, with your eyes. You create an entire picture or a movie in your mind, and in that picture, you are the director, you are the producer, you are the main actor or actress. Everyone else is secondary actor or actress. It is your movie. The way that you see that movie is according to the agreements you have made with life. So just think about that. Everybody is living in a world where they're the producer and actor and writer in their own movie. We see their movie, but we see it through our eyes, our projection. 
let's see what we can do to take ourselves out of that movie for a second and watch it from a place of objectivity and see what we can do. See what happens when we stop taking things personally. We will realize that we are not the center of the world, that the boundaries of importance do indeed go further than our own person, our own families, our own workplace, our own community, etc. So the goal really is to get yourself into a practice where you can take people's opinions of you, the good and the bad, and not be affected by them. Meaning if someone tells you that you're wonderful, you don't go on a high as a result. You already know that you're wonderful. And all of your imperfections, the whole part of you is wonderful. So someone says you're wonderful, good, thanks. You know, someone says that you're terrible, you already know that there are terrible parts about you. (laughs) And you don't have to take any sort of personalization to the fact that they see any part that might not be perfect. Are you perfect? If you listen to any of these ideas and put any amount of weight into them, that's you taking it personally. Whether it is the opinions you have about yourself or the opinions that come from someone else, um, you don't have to buy into it. And this allows ourselves to be, again, objective. Go back to that Sakshi witness, the idea that we have the choice to believe or not believe the voices that are are being heard in our own minds, that gives us power, huge amounts of power. And we can watch ourselves like a witness and enjoy the show, my friends. It's pretty fun when you learn how to do that. It takes a lot of work. I'm going to leave you with everything that that we've gone through thus far. And um, my hope is that you will stir it up and digest and absorb and take the parts that mean something to you and leave the parts that don't and see if you can put any of this into practice. We'll meet up for next month's episode and we'll continue with the remaining two agreements, which are don't make assumptions and always do your best. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. If any of this has stirred you to continue a conversation, please reach out to me at jdillon4n6 at gmail.com. That's J-D-I-L-L-O-N-4N6 at gmail.com. The email's in the show notes. I look forward to conversations and namaste.